The world of men's jewelry is getting more exciting and dynamic by the minute. The luxury jewelry brand David Yearman has long been at the vanguard, and now President and Chief Creative Officer Evan Yearman has announced Sean Mendes as the house's new brand ambassador. As a singer, songwriter, and activist, the Grammy Award-nominated and American Music Award winner will work alongside female brand ambassador Scarlett Johansson, a Tony winner and Academy Award-nominated actor, mother, and philanthropist. They will appear together in the brand's new campaign titled Nature's Artistry, which celebrates the enduring inspiration provided by the natural world. Directed and photographed by Glenn Luckford, the natural light and beautiful environments give the campaign a relaxed sophistication. Enjoy all of the images and short films at davidyearman.com. Happy Saturday. It's February 18th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in Rome. And we are two of your airmail editors that are trying to figure out what we like more, MAGA or the magazine industry. I don't know, Michael, what is it for you? Oh, I would say MAGA, MAGA, the magazine. And why don't you explain it? Because it's, it's, uh, <laughs> this is a wonderful treat we've got for everyone in the issue this week, right? All right. Well, to our listeners uh, from all over the world, it might not automatically come to mind that MAGA was Donald Trump's famous slogan, make America great again. Uh, we were never really fans of that, although there was plenty of comedy and ridiculousness involved. Now, we have taken it and turned it on its head with a new magazine all about MAGA, the personalities, the characters, the absurdities. So we have a special new publication within a publication in this week's issue of Airmail. It is MAGA, the magazine, and it's edited by Graydon Carter and Bruce Handy. And it brings together a lot of old spy magazine hands. So Bruce worked with Graydon to bring together this fantastic lineup. You've got uh, a column on Ask Melania, Pearls of Wisdom from the World's Kindest, Most Empathetic, and Not at All Checked Out Advice Columnist. You've got a special column by Kimberly Guilfoyle. If you're looking for a really funny way to start your morning, Magazine, Living Your Trumpiest Life is the tagline, is here to get you going, right? You know, what I love most about this is not the incredible illustration or the hysterical stories, but it's the fact that this is going to confuse the hell out of Donald Trump. For all I know, you're going to see Trump try, trying to hawk subscriptions to it on his own website just to get some money. Just when we thought nothing good came out of the Trump years, we get the magazine. Mm, there is a bit of a bright side, at least through satire and parody. It, MAGA world, and he, the MAGA head, is, uh, is a gift that just keeps on giving. But speaking of gifts that keep on giving, we have a wonderful issue this week. Oh, we have lots to talk about. First of all, we do have a great issue this week. Uh, we've got Cassie David back talking about gatekeeping. So now apparently not telling people where you buy your underwear is a grave sin in online parlance. Gatekeeping is a term for... There's nothing sacred anymore. Not when it comes, not, not when it comes to your private things. Gatekeeping is a term for the, this notion of keeping your sources secret. You know, not telling people where you get your hair done or who does your body waxing or where you buy your clothes. Like anyone actually cares. Um, but apparently people do care because now it's offensive. So leave it to the internet to find out another way to make life slightly more contentious and perplexing. This is the digital equivalent of like having people come into your house and not just go through your medicine chest, but then go into your bedroom and start looking through your closets and your drawers and looking for everything else. I'm like, oh, so that's where they get their shirts. Hmm, take a picture of that. It's a bad place we've gotten. Nora Ephron famously said everything is copy, but if she were alive and writing today, I think she would say everything is marketing because it's 
unbelievable how now one's entire online existence has just turned into a way of selling things. Yeah, you're all just being commodified. But we do have a lovely little way to escape that all this today because we've got a great show. We've got Joseph Bomar here who's going to tell us about why Brits in a certain part of the country have had enough of rich Americans horning in on their slice of paradise. And then we have Nancy Jo Sales who's going to join us to share her provocative theory on what may explain the murderous behavior of Brian Koberger, the PhD student in criminal justice who stands accused of killing four Idaho college students. And finally, Reed Mittenbuehler has a fascinating tale of a chaotic adventure that resulted when a 1930s Hollywood studio teamed up with one of the greatest explorers of the day. Ashley, where do you want to start today? Yeah, let's start with the Cotswolds, okay? Because everybody's always trashing on the Hamptons in New York. And now I think that it's time that we put our lens onto the Hamptons of the UK. Joseph Bullmore, a writer at large for Airmail and also the editor of the Gentleman's Journal, covers this subject and so much more for us. And we are very happy to have him here to explain why the Yanks on the Wald are all the rage these days. Welcome, Joseph. So, Joe, first of all, what are the Cotswolds? Where are the Cotswolds? Can you explain what it's like there? Sure. Well, the Cotswolds is a kind of beautiful stretch of English countryside, about an hour and a half due west of London, across kind of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire. And the most desirable bit is this kind of polygon of very beautiful villages and towns with very evocative English names like Borton on the Water, Upper Swell, the Slaughters and Great Chew. And all these villages are kind of characterised by this lovely golden honey-coloured stone which the houses are built in. It's lovely, very typical kind of rolling English countryside and doubly desirable because you can get there in 90 minutes after finishing work on a Thursday or a Friday evening. It turns out it's also very desirable for Americans looking to escape America for various reasons have kind of added a house in one of these Cotswold villages to their portfolio of international jet-set destinations. So yeah, it's become a place as much for Manhattanites, I suppose, as West Londoners and the rest, with mixed results, perhaps we'll say. If some people refer to it as the Hamptons of London, is that a true assessment? I mean, obviously no beaches. No beaches, but I think if you're a very successful Londoner, it's the logical spot, really. And there's a set of people well-known in the kind of media who even have their own Wikipedia page. They're called the Chipping Norton Set, and they span people from former Prime Minister David Cameron to Matthew Freud of the Freud dynasty, who who's obviously the PR guru, Rebecca Brooks, who's the CEO of News International, of course, telecoms billionaire Charles Dunstan, property magnate called Tony Gallagher, and then Jeremy Clarkson, who's obviously the big kind of media figure, all kind of sprinkled in with various Murdochs and other various aristocratic families. So it is a kind of real power player set in a very small concentration of houses, basically, in a funny neck of the woods. So definitely, I think it is kind of Hampton-esque. But so you say it has mixed results, which I think is a British way of saying there's probably some conflict there. There's probably some people who are angry at each other. Yes. How is that playing out? Let's get to the dirt here. Of course. Well, broadly, I think it's fair to say that most of the Americans are integrating seamlessly and completely love the Cotswolds, which is why they moved there in the first place. But there are unintended consequences. The Californian business tycoon, Peter Mullen, who's a massive car fanatic and has, I think, these car museums all across the world. He is building a Norman Foster designed car museum on the outskirts of a tiny, beautiful village called Great Chew, which has caused consternation by a few of its residents, not least Sir Patrick Stewart, who has written over the years vocally to the local council, kind of decrying this, what he'll see as a massive eyesore and this 
kind of monument to expensive supercars in beautiful natural surroundings. So that's one example of how it's gone wrong. The other examples are kind of more low level and tacit and you hear them in the queue to Dalesford Organic or the pool at Soho House. People around that neck of the woods don't necessarily love Aravis or newcomers. They've got a very set idea of the pecking order of things and the structure and the way you should talk and the clothes you should wear and the shoes you should have and the cars you should drive and anything kind of shiny and with good dentistry and with nice cars, as a lot of Americans are, especially the wealthy Americans, is seen as, I don't know, a little bit not the thing, really, a little bit off colour. But there are loads, of course, of many, many successful American integrations who probably add some much needed zhuzh, if I'm going to use that word, to the place. On the subject of off colour, is this where a certain acronym would apply now? So, yeah, there's a kind of a classic posho acronym that people use affectionately or not so affectionately, which is T-W-A-T, which you can spell for yourself, but it stands for Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. So those are the days you're in the office working at Night Franks or, I don't know, Goldman's. And then the rest of the week, the long weekend, you come down to the countryside. So the kind of chinny toffs of the Cotswolds describe these incomers who come just for their raunchy long weekends as twats, essentially. And yeah, depending on your intonation, it's either an affectionate term or a slightly unaffectionate one, let's say. And Joseph, is there a patient zero of Americans who like that people point to and say, if it weren't for so-and-so, this never would have happened? that this is the person who sort of started this movement or this sort of rush to, to colonize? It's the most notable one is Amanda Brooks, who's was a big American style director and creative director. I think she worked at Barney's in New York and is by all means a very impressive kind of classic Manhattan power figure. Moved over 10 years ago with the intention of staying for a year or so, but then has kind of stayed put ever since and has really kind of used her exacting stylist eye, I suppose, to create this very successful shop called Cutter Brooks in the centre of Stow on the Wold, which sells kind of beautiful, but traditionally English, high English styles back to the English. And other Americans incoming have told me that she was a kind of real influence on them coming over. The Dambrosies, who are a couple from Brooklyn and Boston, who make kind of typical American food and beautiful stuff and sell Hershey bars and Cheetos from their shop and still in the world. Tell me that she was kind of a fairy godmother to them when they first arrived. And definitely a kind of younger generation of people who would never have thought they'd ever live in the Cotswolds have kind of followed in her footsteps because I think she's made it look so effortless and chic and stylish and done it in her own way that she's, yeah, been fairly influential. I also have to say, like, I see a lot of Brits out in the Hamptons during the summers. Maybe turnabout is fair. I think it definitely goes both ways and it's definitely more than fair enough. And as someone who grew up in North Oxford and my parents used to live in the Cotswolds and spends quite a lot of time there, I think every American I've ever met has been absolutely charming and gives some much needed life to a lot of these places that can get definitely stuck in their ways in the backwater. So yeah, bring it on, I say. Welcome the American invasion and long live the Yanks on the Wold. The world of men's jewelry is getting more exciting and dynamic by the minute. The luxury jewelry brand David Yearman has long been at the vanguard, and now President and Chief Creative Officer Evan Yearman has announced Sean Mendez as the house's new brand ambassador. 
As a singer, songwriter, and activist, the Grammy Award-nominated and American Music Award winner will work alongside female brand ambassador Scarlett Johansson, a Tony winner and Academy Award-nominated actor, mother, and philanthropist. The two will appear together in the brand's new campaign titled Nature's Artistry, which celebrates the enduring inspiration provided by the natural world. Directed and photographed by Glenn Luckford, the natural light and beautiful environments give the campaign a relaxed sophistication. Enjoy all of the images and short films at davidyearman.com. What is the notion of involuntary celibacy? And what, if anything, does it have to do with the Idaho murder case that's captivated the nation as well as our readers? Well, maybe nothing, maybe everything. And Nancy Jo Sales is here to explain exactly what it is and why we should care. Nancy Jo Sales is a journalist and she's the author of two books, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers and Nothing Personal, My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno. Welcome, Nancy Jo. Okay, Nancy Joe. since the arrest of Brian Koberger, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not he may or may not have been an incel. First of all, what is an incel and how do you think it relates to this overall story? Incels are men, heterosexual men, who blame women for their lack of romantic success. They don't have girlfriends and they say this is the fault of women for not seeing how desirable they are. And this is because... Women, the most desirable of whom they refer to as Stacys. Stacys are, in the minds of incels, are stupid and shallow and only go for guys. Incels called chads, who are good-looking, square-jawed, sort of frat boy kind of guys. So incels feel left out of this romantic dance that the chads and the Stacys are doing. They feel like they're on the outside. And this isn't just some sad, lonely musings of guys in their mother's basements. This is a growing movement that's been assessed as a domestic terror threat because incel rhetoric is violent. They inhabit these many, many hundreds of blogs and websites and Reddit threads and all kinds of online activity in what's known as the manosphere. And there's a really great book about this actually called Men Who Hate Women by the British author Laura Bates that came out a year or two ago that I really recommend where Laura Bates went undercover as an incel and visited the manosphere as an incel and saw firsthand what they were talking about. And it's often very violent thoughts, ideas about women and about how women should be punished. And this is no joke. Law enforcement takes this very, very seriously. Incel ideology has been tied to scores of murders in the last decade, including a couple of mass murders. One was the attack, the terror attack that took place in Toronto, Canada in 2018, where a man in his 20s plowed down between 10 and 20 people, I forget the exact number, most of whom were women. And as he did so, he said, death to all the Chads and Stacys, let the incel revolution begin. He cited Elliot Roger, who was a, is sort of the king of the incels. Elliot Roger was a young man who in 2014 did another mass murder in Isla Vista, California, also prompted by his hatred of women. In your story this week, you talk about one possible motive that may have been a formation point in the suspect's growth into becoming an incel when so far back as middle school. If you could talk about your thinking about that, your reporting on that, and how that may lead us to where we are right now, right? We don't know for sure that Brian Koberger is an incel, that he qualifies specifically as an incel. But 
in the absence of knowing the exact motive in the case, which the police haven't released yet, we haven't heard the prosecution's case yet, it does seem that he bears a lot of the identity traits of what we would characterize as an incel. And in fact, a few former FBI agents who have been interviewed by the media have speculated, one very early on who did so before he was even caught, that this was the work of an incel. Why would people in law enforcement profile this murderer, even before they knew who he was, as an incel? Well, I mean, there was the fact that the house was full of young women, really girls. A lot of them were in their, just in their teens, and they were very attractive. They were young women who, I don't mean to dehumanize these victims and their roommates in any way by applying a word that an incel would use for them. I apologize for doing so. We're talking merely in, I apologize for having to do so when talking about the profiling of an incel. But having said that, I mean, you could see how through an incel's lens, the house would be a house that was full of what they refer to as Stacy's, which are these beautiful blonde girls, popular, who would never give them the time of day. The killing was so very brutal in nature and was committed at night in these women's beds. So I think that what sparked the interest, I think, of some law enforcement to say that this was an, an incel killing was the fact that these the house was full of women and that they were targeted in such a brutal and kind of homicidally sexual way in bed at night with a knife. These are difficult things to talk about. And I apologize to the victims and their families for having to discuss it in this way. But this is, I think, what struck some people who remarked upon on this. And then once Koberger was caught, the information about his relationship to women just keeps trickling out more and more, builds a profile of what I think people could legitimately see as an incel profile. He didn't appear to have any romantic liaison with a woman, although he appears to be straight. He was having difficulties that in part led to his being fired from his teaching assistant position at Washington State University because he wasn't getting along with women. He was making them uncomfortable. He had been known for what's known as mansplaining or over-explaining to women in his class about things, being condescending, acting like he knew more than they did about subjects. He allegedly followed a student in his teaching assistant role. While he was a teaching assistant, he allegedly followed a female student to her car, making her very uncomfortable. And these things were reported to the university. Going back to his childhood, really. When he's in middle school, he was apparently the victim of bullying of some girls in his school because this is in no way to blame these girls. I mean, bullying is good. Bullying should never happen. But apparently, as kids say, he started it. He was making the girls uncomfortable. He was reaching out, if you will, or approaching one of them repeatedly, asking if she liked him or wanted to be his girlfriend. And this is a thing that he keeps doing. These reports just keep coming up and coming up that he, that this guy Koberger in this very awkward way throughout middle school and then high school was repeatedly approaching girls and making them uncomfortable, being awkward, being persistent. We hear there's a story by a woman, 26 year old woman who says that she went on a date with him on a Tinder date, which isn't surprising. I mean, this is how young people meet now on dating services on online and that he was very awkward and uncomfortable. She made her uncomfortable during the date. 
pressuring her to come over, pressuring her to touch her. She finally got rid of him, after which he texted her that she had, quote unquote, good birthing hips, which is a weird thing for anybody to say to anybody, but especially, it's a small detail, but it sort of smacks of incel ideology because incels believe that women's main value is their ability to procreate. So that's sort of the case, broadly speaking, for Koberger to be an incel. Now, we don't know. We don't know for sure what is going on in his mind or what the police know about him. But I will say that whether or not it's going to come down definitively that Koberger can definitively be called an incel, the guy has, from all reports, and there are a number of them now, the guy has had serious issues with women in the past. While we'd like to think that this was an isolated incident, we're seeing a crisis among this generation of men for these very reasons that you've described. Inability to relate to people outside of the internet atmosphere, the internet ecosystem. How do we fix this? What do we do about this? Is this a uniquely American phenomenon? This is so worrisome because we like to think that we progress, right? We like to think that we live in a society that becomes more and more enlightened, that we we are on a path towards becoming more and more progressively equal and having more rights and freedoms for everyone. But unfortunately, this is not the case, particularly in the case of the women's movement. I mean, we've just seen the overturning of Roe v. Wade. We're sort of going backwards. Meanwhile, there's this rising, not even rising recently, but rising more vehemently recently misogyny online that's being purveyed that is really affecting young men. And there have been several stories written about it at this point. I was just talking to a young man for another story, a young man in high school. I'm doing another story that involves high schoolers. And he's an organizer around a certain issue. And he was saying that it's been very, very hard to get any of the younger guys into these feminist issues that his group is trying to promote. Why? Because in his words, they're all on that Andrew Tate wave, meaning that younger high schoolers are, in his estimation, more misogynistic, less open to feminism or even discussion of women's rights. They are listening to a lot of these really virulently anti-feminist, misogynistic podcasters. Andrew Tate's been arrested, as we know, in Europe, but there's a lot more. (laughs) The manosphere is broad and the podcasting realm has Many, many virulently misogynistic men on there telling men, telling younger men that women are the problem. And they're taking this in. Like you mentioned, they are also not really having a lot of real world experience of girls and women because high schoolers and middle schoolers these days tend to spend, especially since the pandemic, I mean, that only exacerbated the problem. They tend to spend more and more time alone, online, playing games, playing video games. There's a long debate about whether or not video games make young men more violent. There's arguments for and against that theory. However, what cannot be argued is that playing video games for many, many hours a day does take one away from engaging with other human beings. And particularly if that would be to socialize young men towards knowing what women are all about, what girls are all about, how to talk to them. It's a problem. So it's not hard to imagine how this happens. You have a young kid. He might be going through puberty. He doesn't feel all that attractive. Maybe if he's hetero, girls and is interested in girls, they're not responding to him in a very positive way. He doesn't have much contact with them. He's playing video games all the time. He goes down the manosphere rabbit hole, and which tells him that, well, no, the problem isn't you. The problem is that these snobby girls for which 
many slurs are used, that it's really them. They're really the issue. And then he goes on podcasts and hears more about that. And it's, I mean, for want of a better word, it's brainwashing. And he becomes brainwashed to think that women, bad, man, good. And, but what about these sexual urges I have? What should I do with those? Well, women shouldn't have any choice in the matter, which is what incels say. They don't feel that women should have a choice in the matter of whether or not they have sex with them. And so when they're rid, they get angry. And this anger can turn very dangerous. Well, it's a horrifying story and a horrifying phenomenon that we're seeing in our society right now. Thank you so much for your interpretation and your thoughts on it and bringing this to light. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nancy Joe. Well, that's a harrowing conversation, Michael. Yeah. I mean, you guys are right to look at the broader social context that this is playing out in, but it also, as Nancy Joe touched on, it's going to be quite revealing to see where the prosecution lands and where the defense lands and whether this is a factor and how it's going to potentially affect where the jury lands as well. Yes, indeed. Well, I think we need to move on to something a little bit less harrowing and a little more swashbuckling. I'm all in favor of that. Well, swashbuckling, my favorite thing. Perfect. Where are we going? (laughs) How did an eccentric Danish explorer end up becoming the toast of Hollywood and also an insurgent fighter against the Nazis? These questions and more are answered in Reed Mittenbuehler's marvelous new book, Wanderlust, An Eccentric Explorer, An Epic Journey, and A Lost Age. Reed is here to tell us all about the Danish explorer, Peter Freuchen. Welcome, Reed. All right. So, Reed, we're here to talk about a man I'd never known about, and I think many people never knew. You hear about all these other famous swashbuckler explorers of the early 20th century. But you come along with a man named Frieder Peter Freuchen, who weirdly intersects with Hollywood in the 1930s in a kind of tale that's almost too good to be true. Tell us about it, who he was and what happened. Yeah. So Peter Freuchen, he lived, I think, one of the most interesting lives of the 20th century. And it's partly because there's this Where's Waldo aspect to him. Like he's popping up everywhere. It's kind of unexpected. He's got this adventurous explorer career. But then you see him in the White House, you see him in World War II, and there's this is you see him in Golden Age Hollywood. And when he landed in Golden Age Hollywood, he was making the biggest, you know, the most expensive movie that had ever been made in Hollywood history. After his exploring career, which was almost two decades, he had suffered an accident where he had lost his foot. And while recovering from his foot, he becomes a novelist. And he's an international best-selling novelist. And his first novel, it was titled Eskimo in English, MGM decides they want to make it into a movie. And they get W.S. Van Dyke lined up as the director. And at the time, he was the James Cameron of his day. He had done the Tarzan movies, later went on to do the Thin Man movies with William Powell and Myrna Loy. And it was a really ambitious movie for the reasons they wanted to film it in the Arctic on location, which was very rare at the time. And they also wanted to use local cast. They wanted to use Inuit because Peter Freuchen had lived among the Inuit. He had married an Inuit woman. He wanted to show the humanness of them. There were a lot of stereotypes or a lot of noble savage stereotypes. And so they wanted to film a good portion of the movie in Inupiat, which is a dialect spoken in Alaska. And it cost about a million dollars, which was probably the most expensive, one of the most expensive movie budgets of all time. Irving Thalberg, who was the inspiration for the main character in The Last Tycoon, was one of the producers. And so the movie starts with these grand ambitions, these high ideals. And then over the course of filming, you kind of see in this very Hollywood way, those ideals deteriorating. They couldn't cast all Inuits because they just really didn't have acting talent that they needed. And then you see the story, Peter Freuchen, he was critical of colonialism. And you see that it's still in the movie, but it got kind of edged out. They wanted a happier ending. 
And then you see the studio really lean into the polygamy that you would see in a lot of Inuit culture. So it has these movie posters like Wife Traders, Wild Weird Tales of the Arctic, and they really leaned into that as sexual. And this is right before the Hayes Code was put into place, so they, they could get by with a little bit more of that. And by the time you get to the film's release, they're pretty much just totally leaning into that. Ordered to boost the box, box office a little bit later, they had even changed the title of the movie to Eskimo Wife Traders, something that would be offensive to a lot of people then and today. So it's this really interesting story about his Hollywood experience, but you see him going through Golden Age Hollywood. And for me, that was really one of the most interesting parts of the story. Reed, how did you stumble upon this character? I mean, he was somewhat lost to history, at least or so it seems. Yeah, so the way I found Freuken, I have a friend who is a member of the Explorers Club in New York on the Upper East Side. And it's this mansion that is gorgeous. You go in and it's like a throwback to a distant stage. It's like something you might find in a Wes Anderson novel. You've got Persian rugs and stuffed leather club chairs. And there's all kinds of artifacts around this place, maps and globes and things like that. He tells me, he just become a member. He's like, you've got to see this place. We'll go after hours and we'll drink some whiskey and we'll just catch up. We were due for a catch up. So it felt like we were doing something kind of illicit. So we go to the Explorers Club. It's really dark. And we go up this creaky staircase to a place called the Trophy Room. And when you go into the Trophy Room, it's got this Hall of Wonders vibe. You've got, there's this pelt of a Siberian tigress rumored to have eaten 48 men tacked against the wall. There's a lion rug. You've got these tusks around this giant fireplace. I think they were donated by Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was a member of the club, a lot of famous explorers, Thor Heyerdahl, people like that. And so we're sitting there, we're drinking our whiskeys. So it takes me a while to notice this painting above the fireplace. It's kind of, it's a little bit of a goofy painting. And it's of this guy, he's a giant of a man. He's about six and a half feet tall. He's got this burly beard. He's got a pirate-like peg leg and he's wearing a suit. He kind of has this odd expression. And I'm looking at him I'm like, wait, who is this guy? And like, what did this guy do to get his portrait over the fireplace in a place like the Explorers Club. So I walk up to the painting and there's a little plaque underneath it, Peter Freuken. Like, okay, who's Peter Freuken? So I start, I look him up and this man's life, I mean, it's a life, Mark Twain could have written this thing. He's just all over the place, all of these adventures, constant near-death experiences while working as, a, as an explorer in the Arctic in the very beginning of the 20th century. And then you get into the golden age of Hollywood stuff. He marries a, an Inuit woman. He marries a margarine heiress. His third wife, who you can see in that famous Irving Penn portrait where he's wearing the giant fur coat and she's in this dapper suit sitting next to him. She was a fashion illustrator for Vogue. She worked on the edition of Vogue that introduced Christian Dior to the United States. So very glamorous woman. He was part of the underground resistance during World War II, the Danish resistance. And he goes on to win the $64,000 question, famous game show in the 1950s. So He's a little bit like Zelig. He's a little bit like Where's Waldo? He's all over the place. And all of these stories are funny. They're suspenseful. And I knew right then I had the subject of my next book. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, he had a Hollywood studio salary, right? He was like earning a fairly good living. And then as you tease in the piece, he used some of the, it sounds like he had a relatively dissatisfying career in Hollywood, but he managed to spin gold out of it with what he did with his money. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so his salary, he was making $300 a week, which back then was very good money. It allowed him to save, allowed him to take care of his family. He had a farm. He owned a small island in Denmark, Anahoya. And he's in Hollywood in the 1930s. He got Hitler rising through the ranks in Germany at the time. And he was rescuing a lot of refugees. So a lot of refugees coming out of Germany, coming into Denmark, trying to get their way to Sweden or to the United States. And he's helping them. So all of this money that he's making and how he's living a 
pretty high life in Hollywood. He's hanging around with stars and he's doing that whole thing. He's going to parties, directors' homes and that sort of thing. But he's also taking his money. He's helping these refugees. That was important to him. And he had a part later on in the resistance. After his Hollywood career, he goes back to Denmark for a while and participated in the resistance. This is such a fun story. It takes us through so many wild and crazy periods in history through the eyes of someone who's really quite a character. So thank you so much, Reed, for bringing this to light for us. Thank you for having me on. The book is called Wanderlust, an eccentric explorer and epic journey in a lost age. It's coming out soon. Reed, thanks for being here. Thank you. This book is worth it alone just for the cover. I think this is the only guy who can get away with wearing that much fur. He looks like a lion in human form. But that dramatic photograph, as he mentioned, taken by Irving Penn, and it's just as, I mean, he looks like an abominable snowman in Penn's studio. It's a great book jacket. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Speaking of good books, Michael, are you reading anything? Are you watching anything? Do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? I do. Have you seen Sharper yet? No, it's on my list. Tell us. Okay. So it's the new movie from Apple and A24. It's in theaters now and also streaming on Apple. But I would put it high on Ashley Baker's list because it's a stylish little swindler about one of our favorite subjects, cons and grifters. So I got you right there, don't I? I feel seen. Good, because it stars Julianne Moore and John. John Lithgow is a billionaire and his socialite wife who are at the center of a double cross, a triple cross. It's got a little bit of six degrees of separation, a little bit of usual suspect. I think if you're looking for that perfect thing to bridge you till the next season of Succession arrives, you've got this one to keep you enjoying bad deeds of the very rich. The ending might disappoint some of you, but it's a fun ride. So it's called Sharper. It's streaming on Apple, but also in theaters. And you, Ashley, what do you got? Unfortunately, I don't have anything to recommend because I had the norovirus this week and I was incapable of consuming media that was too like taxing on the brain. So I watched this awful romantic comedy on Netflix called Your Place or Mine. Have you heard about this? It's the new Reese Witherspoon, Ashton Kutcher thing. I did. And you're sure that that's not what made you ill? For some reason, I'm so damaged. I think every romantic comedy is going to be Sleepless in Seattle or When Harry Met Sally and it just isn't. But this is so disappointing. It's like we have friends who are screenwriters. We know that there are lots of great movies being passed around the hands of agents in Hollywood. And yet this is the movie that gets made. I'm sorry to say it. I found the writing so painful. And Reese Witherspoon is so brilliant. And Ashton Kutcher is great, too. I don't really understand how the two of them got together and made this movie. Witherspoon produced it. I don't mean to trash it because that just feels cruel. But this also felt like a complete waste of two hours. And I'm saying that as someone who is suffering from the norovirus, okay? So I'm sorry to say I cannot recommend it, although I wish I could, because two lovers lost between New York and Los Angeles, fate pulling them in different directions, communication issues. Like, this should be my kind of movie. And yet, Michael, it was so cheesy that it wasn't even redeemably cheesy. It was just painfully cheesy. So I'm sorry to report, I'm not going to be able to recommend anything this week. In fact, I will just say, avoid. And watch When Harry Met Sally. If you're in the mood for a romantic comedy, just watch When Harry Met Sally instead. You will be better off. You're doing this of all the service. It's like it's like sort of warning someone off dating someone bad. It's just a romantic comedy. No, no. Looks good, but you don't want to go near him or her, right? So it's just as, that's a recommending that's saving me from some trouble. So it's got a positive in the end. Indeed. We thank you all so much for joining us. We would like to thank our sponsor this week, Dave David Yerman. Michael, will you please read us out? Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis. And our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is... 
The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram on Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting, so please, in the meantime, subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you like to get your podcasts. But most of all, on behalf of Ashley and me, thank you again for joining us.